now listening to Grace City Portland. I, uh, I have the pleasure of, uh, of speaking here this morning and, uh, and teaching from the scriptures. It is my understanding that you guys have been going through a series uh, called The Classics. The Classics. Is this, is this true? This is true. I knew it was true, but uh, I just wanted to slow play that a little bit just in case. Uh, it's true. The Classics. And I actually think this is a brilliant idea. Um, a brilliant idea. Um, not the least of which because there are some amazing passages within the scripture. Some amazing stories. Um, but I think one, there's, there's some pros and some cons, I think, to the way I think our overall kind of Western culture has gone. Clearly, there's been a decline in spiritual like awareness, certainly of a Christian perspective or consciousness. And I think in terms of a general biblical literacy, there is a decline in that. Meaning that there's just fewer and fewer people that grow up with churches or tradition or a background where they went to Sunday school and maybe they got, you know, they had the flannel graph out and they kind of had for them all the major you know, stories charted for them. Sometimes the theological interpretation of those stories get really, really wacky and sometimes they're flat out untrue. But at least you have a framework to work with. If I if I mention David, you know Goliath. If I mention Samson, you know, you, you know about the hair, you know. Uh, there's just a few reference points um, that people have. And, but by and large, that is going away. And I've, I've found, like, just time and time again, whether it's in Corvallis or it's Eugene's Portland, anywhere actually across the Western world, over in Europe's the same, is that you, you throw out casual references to some of these stories and you get... Uh, you just get blank stares that come back at you. And um, okay, I think there is some redemptive aspects of that and I think some, some unfortunate aspects of that. Redemptively, um, you get to see with some fresh eyes some incredible stories that aren't buried under multiple layers of uh, um, all kinds of religious baggage and tradition that you might have had growing up. And some of you know what that's like. Uh, I didn't grow up in church, but my wife did, and so we were, we're always coming at the scriptures from different angles sometimes. Uh, me trying to freshly understand, and I think her trying to refreshly understand these scriptures. And sometimes, in order to communicate down to the level of whether it's kindergarten or elementary school or so forth, uh, you almost have to make them childish stories that uh, in order to make them understandable, because they're, they're very complex, nuanced, and profound stories. In order to make them understandable sometimes, you actually have to strip some of the, the meaning and the power out of them. Um, and so there's, there's a task to do when these stories are familiar, because the more familiar they get, they can actually become unfamiliar, um, if you know what I mean. Um, but I think, I think that might be the redemptive side, that some of you might be able to hear our passage today for the first time with fresh ears, uh, and I just think that's amazing. I think there's nothing like those first times encountering some of these classics and hear, hearing what they have to say. Um, but I think on the converse side of it, um, these passages have so much to say in terms of not just the nature of God and what he's like, but also just the human condition and what we're like and what it looks like to flourish as human beings as God has truly designed us to. And even if that's just a very background, kind of almost subconscious awareness of these stories, when we lose that, I think we're losing touch with something rather important. And so what I think we're doing today is actually of incredible value. It's a bit revolutionary. Um, it, uh, it's a bit progressive and conservative, like all at the same time, preserving an ancient uh, tradition on one hand, and also, I think, progressing the vision that I think Jesus has for our world at the same time. And so if you would journey with me on this crazy ride into the classics, we're going to go to Genesis chapter 22 
uh, this morning, Genesis 22. And I've got to be brutally honest with you. Genesis 22, it's up there. It's at least in my top thousand Bible stories, favorite Bible stories. Um, no, it, it, might be my, it might be the top, top one. It could be. Um, it seems like every given week, depending on the passage that I am, that becomes my favorite. Uh, but this one's up there. Um, and uh, it's, it's a really powerful and profound one. Um, so what I'm going to do, um, Genesis chapter 22, it's obviously found within the first book of the Bible. Genesis is, is the first book. Um, and chapter 22 is a good ways in. Um, I want to set just a little bit of context for it, but not, not too much. And then I'd like to actually just read through the story itself. It doesn't take too long, uh, but this is just a, it's a relatively gripping story. Um, and we're going to read through it, and then, and then we'll actually do some processing. So Genesis 22 is going to introduce us to two main characters, and that would be I, Abraham and his son Isaac. Abraham and his son Isaac. Abraham is super old, um, and Isaac uh, is less old. Um, but Isaac was promised to Abraham. As a man who did not have any kids, he was promised by God he was going to have kids at a later age in life. And the promise that came to Abraham was he wasn't just going to have a family. He was going to have the family through which God was going to restore his blessing to the entire world. No matter how you want to categorize it, everyone can look across the world and say, like, yeah, things are not the way they're supposed to be. Things are not all good. And so the Bible calls that sin, the human propensity to really mess things up. And the Bible looks at that world that's just as completely eroded and polluted and degraded and destroyed the blessing of God that he wanted to be pervasive throughout the human experience. And God's promise is that he was going to restore that, renew that, and he was going to start through one family to eventually bless all families. Well, that one family he wanted to start with was Abraham. The only problem was he and his wife are both old, past their childbearing years, and it didn't seem like any blessing that was going to go to him would spread anywhere beyond him. And so after a lot of waiting and a lot of amazing stories found from Genesis 12 through chapter 21, uh, you see this just amazing process whereby God fulfills his promise and brings Abraham a son. He brings Abraham a son. It's miraculous. It's amazing. Even though Abraham acts like a knucklehead time and time again, God is faithful to him. Uh, he's faithful to his promises. And here we are in chapter 22, knowing all of that. Knowing that Abraham's entire life has been building up to this moment of having this son, Isaac, um, and, uh, and this, is, uh, this is one of the first major things that uh, God commands Abraham to do with his son. Y'all ready? Well, even if you're not, away we go. Genesis 22, sometime later, God tested Abraham. Well, that's fun. How many of you love it when God tests you? It's like the worst, best thing ever. You know what I mean? It's clearly doing something important, and it clearly feels not fun. <clears throat> but this is important to know on the front end. This is a test. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. We all good so far? <laughs> a few Jesus songs, some good coffee. There's cinnamon rolls back there. Child sacrifice commanded by God. We all doing okay so far? <laughs> Just a natural progression. Happy Father's Day, by the way. <laughs> For all you dads out there, 
don't lie and don't think to yourself, this has never been an option for you. You know what I mean? Like, God, wish God would test me like this. Um, yeah, huh. Well, that's an interesting beginning to the story. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, to the region of Moriah. You're going to sacrifice him there as a burnt offering. Let's keep going. So early the next morning, Abraham got up, sure enough, loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac, and when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, uh, said to his father, Abraham, uh, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. Um, so the fire and the wood, they're here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it, and he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand, and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham! There I am, he replied. Don't lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram, sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place Yahweh, or the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of Yahweh, or the Lord, it will be provided. Whoa. Close call. <clears throat> it is so difficult, the more times that I've read this story, to try to, try to refresh my emotions as I engage with it. I think of all the stories that I've read in the scriptures. This one has probably come with the most tears. But it's difficult to try to imagine being in the position of a father with a son you've waited all your life for, has come at the miraculous provision of God, and they've been commanded by that same God to go kill him. It's difficult to imagine the kind of spiritual vertigo, you know what I mean? It's like, <clears throat> how many of you have ever thought you've heard something from God before? You know what I mean? And you questioned it, and it didn't sound anything like this level of crazy. How does one even begin to process a God who promises you a son and then commands you to kill him? How does that even begin? How does that even start? And what's more shocking about the story is the fact that it tells us nothing. Like, how did Abraham process that? Early the next morning, he got up, loaded his donkey, and took his son to the region of Moriah to do the thing that God had commanded him to do. That's all we get. No internal strife, no back and forth. Early the next morning, he just goes. But we read the story, and we know something that Abraham doesn't know. The story tells us, before Abraham is engaged with it, that this is a test. So we almost have the safety button pressed through it out. You know what I mean? This is safe mode. 
for us. We read the story, and it's like, it's all good. It'll turn out fine. It's just a test. You know what I mean? It's like when the emergency system comes up on your screen, and you hear it, and you're like, this is just a test of the emergency broadcast system. You're like, okay, let's, uh, we can talk through procedures, you know? Uh, it's, it's all good. It's fine. Could you imagine that the ground is shaking, and fireballs are coming down from the sky, and that sound is coming out of your TV? When it's just a test, you can read through it with the calmest emotions, the clarity of thought, and almost like a disconnectedness to it. Because you know what? It's just a test. If I forget, it doesn't matter. Because in the end of the day, it is just a test. Abraham doesn't get that. And one thing that we, well, we should know like if you've read the Bible actually from cover to cover, uh, how many times does God favor child sacrifice? Goose eggs. Thank you. Good answer, by the way. Yeah, zero. In fact, it is actually, child sacrifices happen at several moments throughout the Bible, but they're done uh, as expressions of worship to other gods. And in fact, they represent some of the most vile and detestable things to God when people do these things. It's so clearly denounced, so clearly condemned as a practice, so far removed from what God ever commands or expects of his people in terms of the preservation of life, that you would actually give away the most vulnerable of life. It is so, it is so antithetical to the story to see it pop up here in Genesis 22, almost out of nowhere, and just think, yeah, a God who is passionately against the slaughtering of the innocent and the vulnerable, says, take an innocent and vulnerable one. Nothing about this story makes sense. And this is where the story begins. That a command of God, which we know is a test, but Abraham does not, begins with a place not understanding why God would command such a thing. And so you got to think to yourself, if this is a test, what exactly is it testing? If Abraham and his relationship to God is so important because it's through Abraham that God's going to bring salvation and blessing to all the nations, what kind of a relationship with God is it meant to be at the ground floor here with Abraham and eventually his family? And maybe one thing we could say here at the beginning is it's the kind of relationship where obedience to God is unconditional, and even when we don't understand, we still follow through. Is that okay with anyone? It's not with me. I like things I can understand and I can see coming. I love surprises, except when I know there's a surprise coming. Anyone else like that? Everyone ever knows, see, like, for my 30th birthday, um, my wife threw me a big surprise party. And uh, I liked it because she actually kept it a surprise. If I had known there was a surprise party coming, I wouldn't have standed it. And I would have had to know, and they'd be in control. When God would ever tell me to do something so significant, my next question is, why? And if there is no why, well then, once you figure out a why, I'll be right here waiting for you. <laughs> you know, I'm not going anywhere. I'll still sing the songs, by the way. 
I'll sing all the songs. It's great. I'll come to church. I'll drink the coffee. It's all good. I'll go to Ecclesia. You know what? I will serve in the kids' church. Not a problem, God. Seriously, I'm all in-ish. You know what I mean? But once you give me a good reason for why you want me to live this way or to believe this or to walk this out or to go here or to love them or whatever that might look like or be or to sacrifice this or to give up this, well, I, once I have a good reason, I, uh, I found myself after about five years of being a pastor down in Corvallis, and uh, for just for context for those of you that, that haven't uh, been there before, I mean, it's, we're right next to Oregon State University, and so our uh, community has historically been almost 50% college students for, for many, many years now, and so that, that means a couple of things. Uh, it means you kind of cycle through uh, the same questions and issues uh, that uh, the people seem to have every four years. You just kind of cycle through uh, the same stuff, and... Um, and the same angst and the same anxiety, it's, you kind of cycle through and you feel like a bit of an airport, you know what I mean? People just want to lay over. And um, one of the things that I kept getting repeatedly, repeatedly asked over and over again, almost like a broken record, and everyone thinks they're original and everyone thinks that they're like, have thought more deeply about it than everyone else, which is super cute. And, <laughs> and they always say like, yeah, if God's so good, why are there starving babies in Africa? Or you fill in the blank for whatever other horrible thing that's happening in the world at present. Why is there so much war? Why is there bad stuff? God's so good. And uh, they always phrase it in the kind of way you can tell, like, I worked on this. This has been wordsmithed. Particularly to stump you. <clears throat> and after five years, I can't tell you how many books I read and pastors I questioned, trying to pull together the best answers to those questions of why. Why things are like that. Why God allows what he allows. And then after about five years, um, I was in the middle of a seminary course, and I decided to ask my theology professor, which is, in hindsight, a really foolish thing to do, um, but in a good way. And I asked my theology professor, I'm like, okay, finally, you know the Bible better than anyone else I've ever talked to or any other book that I've, I've actually read up to this, this point. Like, I, I really respected this man. He's still a good friend to this day. And I asked him, I said, what does the Bible say? Why does God let bad things happen? And I expected, like, okay, open up our Bibles. We're going to take some time. We're going to work through this. And just as glib and as quickly as they ever could, he told me, the Bible doesn't say. I said, okay, no, you can't, n no. It's a long book, it's in there somewhere. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? It's in there somewhere. I'm telling you, you know what I mean? If they're gonna spend 18 chapters on circumcision, you know what I mean? <laughs> There's gonna be a chapter on this. It's not fair, it's gonna spend like a whole book of Leviticus on bodily fluids I really don't care about. They're gonna talk about this. And he says, well, as far as I can see, there's two people in Scripture that ask this question of God, and in both times, they're not given answers. So why do you feel so compelled to give an answer that God himself will not give? Okay. 
But there's something at the heart of wanting to know why, isn't there? Legitimate question. Wanting to know why is wanting to know the heart motivation behind something. Not just, hey, what's the outcome of all this sort of thing? But it's like, what kind of a person are you? What kind of a God are you? Can you ultimately be trusted? That's what I want to know. And did you know, and I hate to tell you this, but if you read this thing from cover to cover, you will not get every answer to every question. It will solve every dilemma you'll ever have. It won't give you every possible piece of knowledge you'll ever want to know about God in order to control your fear of trusting him. It'll, go, it'll give you more than enough of what you need to know to trust him, but it'll never be all that you'll want to know. Oh, it's frustrating. He leaves just enough, just enough, so that you can know him and have confidence and an anchored security in him, but to leave, almost leave a bit, so that you don't confuse your knowledge for actual trust. Because faith begins where knowledge ends. It can take you to a place of trust, but ultimately, you have to make a choice of whether or not you're with me on this. And so here we are with Abraham. And like, we haven't even gotten like a couple of verses in the story yet. And here we are. Here we are in this human crisis that all of us experience. And it doesn't even matter if you call you're a Christian or you're not a Christian at this moment. All of us have this human crisis, whether it's involved like in thinking about God or whether it's actually in other people. We have this crisis where God asks us to do something crazy that, count, that completely contradicts everything that we would otherwise know about him. And Abraham saddles up his donkey early the next morning and off he goes. But what he's headed off to do, I don't like. But that he is cooperating without flinching says something about him. And so off he goes. Off he goes. And um, he takes with him his son, his only son whom he loves, the scripture says. His only son, the son whom he loves. He takes the gift of God with him, ultimately to sacrifice that gift back to, back to God. I want to say more about that, but there's a couple of things I have to point out here. Uh, some of you have maybe seen or heard this before, um, but uh, the story is just filled with all kinds of things. You just can't help. You can't unsee them once you've seen them, um, especially when you take into account uh, Jesus. So, um, a couple of things. He says, take your son, your only son, and where are they commanded to go? Where does God tell him to go? Moriah. Moriah. And the question then is, where is Moriah? And that's a great question to ask. Did you know there's only one other mention of Moriah in the Old Testament? It's found in the book of Chronicles, and it's the same place that Solomon was commanded to build the temple. Jerusalem, the temple mount. The mountain where the temple was eventually later going to be built. Uh, okay, so a mountain near where eventually one day we know the temple is going to be built. Uh, and he's supposed to sacrifice his only son whom he loves on this mountain. And so when he's headed off, he took Isaac, he took the fire, he took the wood, and he set out for the place that God had told him about. And when they took the wood, when they arrived at the foot of the mountain, and they start to hike up it, 
It says, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and he placed it on his son. So who carried the wood for the offering up the mountain to be sacrificed? The son carried the wood for his own sacrifice up the mountain. As they head up the mountain, the son asks, where is the lamb? And his dad says, God will provide the lamb. Now, what's difficult to understand, unless you know a little bit of chronology here, and this is where sometimes Sunday school can distort this just a little bit. Abraham is old, like geriatric level old. But how old is Isaac? When I first became a Christian, I saw all like the little cartoon stories where Isaac was a little kid, seven, eight years old. If, if you do just a basic chronology of mapping when the story is taking place, scholars will agree without an exact age of Isaac that he's definitely well within adulthood. Some scholars believe he's actually would be right around his early 30s. So as some people might look at this and say like, oh my gosh, you're taking this helpless, helpless little boy and the father is like having to abuse him and bruise him or lie to him to like get him to lay down on the altar and then bind him to it. The story is actually much different than that. It's an old geriatric dad and a full grown son. And the dad is cooperating with the command he can't fully understand. And the son clearly doesn't have all the information on what's gonna go down. Both of them have to cooperate together in order to do what God has commanded to have happen. Meaning this, the son is fully cooperating with his own sacrifice. That Abraham could not force him to lay down on the wood. And believe me, when you're laying down on the wood, you know exactly who the sacrifice is. Abraham is not going to bind his arms or legs to the wood unless the son is actually allowing him to do so. So rather than a picture of a son making a sacrifice at the hands of an angry or mean-spirited or abusive father. It's the willing, cooperative, if not active sacrifice of the son done in partnership with his father here on this mountain. The son doesn't have all his questions answered. Father doesn't have all his questions answered, but they actively, actively, somehow cooperate together. And for for those of you that haven't had all the lights blink on your dashboard just yet, Jesus Christ on the mountain of Moriah carried his own cross up the hill and willingly gave away his life as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. And some people will tell you that the father 
poured out his wrath on the Son, which is an interesting sentiment that passes for really good Bible theology. The only problem is never anywhere in the Scriptures does it say that. Never once in the Bible does it ever say the Father poured out his wrath on the Son. But what it does say, or at least what it implies here in this passage, that the Father and the Son are somehow cooperating together, I believe, to partner in pouring out their wrath together over sin, death, and evil. And out of this partnership, out of this partnership came the salvation of the world. But a long, long time, almost a couple thousand years before that moment, there came this moment when God decided to test the man who was going to be at the root foundation of how he was eventually going to bless the whole world. And what he commanded him to do was to take his son, his only son, to partner with him in making a sacrifice. And when this father said yes, and when the son said yes, God said yes. This is the kind of family that will eventually be the salvation of the world. When I've looked at this story in the past, when I first became a Christian, I was overwhelmed with the sacrifice of the Son, all that Jesus would endure. In fact, I still remember, I, was a, I became a Christian when I was 20. I was a sophomore at Oregon State University. I still remember, um, it was, I was maybe only a Christian for less than a month and I remember it was the first week I skipped church, uh, so I, I got an early start on that And uh, as a Christian. And I skipped church, and I remember I was just sitting at home uh, on my couch in my apartment. I remember it vividly. And I remember I was alone in my apartment, and I remember reading the Gospel of Matthew, and I couldn't put it down. And I just kept reading it and reading it and reading it. And I just remember seeing, I was reading it for the first time, and I had heard things about it, but I just kept reading it and reading it. And I got to the part about Jesus' trial, and I got to the part about his suffering, and of Pontius Pilate, and the beatings, and everything. And I read all this stuff, and I remember just thinking to myself, no, 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 this can't, this, this isn't supposed, this isn't supposed to be this way. And then I looked at him being nailed to the cross, and looked at him giving up his life, and I just remember weeping at it, thinking to myself, no, this isn't, this can't be how the story ends. This can't be how the story ends. And then that's how the story ended. And I was overwhelmed with the sacrifice of the son, the amount of pain and humiliation that he went through. And then, several years later, and a few children later, I read the story. And I thought to myself, a father and a son cooperating together to make a sacrifice to save the world. One is being sacrificed, the other is proverbially holding the knife. And now I ask myself, not just as a son, but I ask myself as a father, who bears the greatest pain? Every dad in the room knows the answer to that question. I would rather die a thousand painful deaths than bring one ounce of harm to any of my kids. You can't fathom what it would be, not just to see your child go through the pain, but to in any way be a causing, participative agent in that pain. Whatever is going on here, is a level of intensity and concern that we often don't give it credit for.
And this is not Matthew 22, this is Genesis 22. This is God's foreshadow of what was to happen, this foreshadow of what was to come. And when he told Abraham, stop, okay, stop, stop right there, Tess is finished. He says, now I know that you fear God, which the book of Proverbs says is the beginning of wisdom. Which is how I know you fear God. I, now I know you possess true wisdom because you'll obey me even when you don't understand me. <clears throat> but what Abraham was always lauded for, what God was always giving them the high five for, was his faith. His faith. His faith that would lead to a moment like this. His faith that would lead to an obedience like this. And can we ask a quick question? This is my favorite one, by the way. What did Abraham believe would happen? What did he believe would happen? He's told by God to sacrifice his son. Does he believe he's going to sacrifice his son? I love it. You ask this question, and it's like 50-50 all the time. Yes. No way. <laughs> I just look at what it says. Take your son to the region of Moriah. Early the next morning, he got up and went to the region of Moriah. He brought wood, he brought a knife. What do you think he's expecting to do? I think, he's, I think the angel of the Lord had to shout at him to get him to stop from murdering. I, uh, I think he's expecting for, to sacrifice his son. However, listen to what he tells his servants. This is what he tells his servants before he and the boy go off alone up the mountain. We are gonna go up there and worship we will come back down to you. What did Abraham believe would happen? Dude, my God, I'm telling you. I met him all this time ago. I was already super old, and God promised me a son, that I would be a blessing to many nations. He promised me. He'd give me a great name. He promised me, and he fulfilled. I tried to spoil it time and time again, and he's been faithful to me. He's never given up on me. I know that my God is good. I know that my God is faithful. I know that God can do abundantly beyond what I could ever ask or imagine. And more than that, even if I don't understand what my God wants me to do, I know that my God is good. He is fundamentally good, and I am not. And therefore, I can obey him no matter what. And here's what I believe. God promised me this son, and he won't back out on that promise. He isn't just teasing me with this son. This is central to his promise. So if God would command me to actually sacrifice my son, then I guess he's just going to have to do something to bring me back my son. If I'm going to have to slay him, he's going to have to raise him. I guess that's going to have to go. If we're going to go up this mountain together and I'm going to bring the knife with me, he's going to be able to come down with me. I don't know how it's going to happen, but all that I can tell you is we're going up. He promised me this son. We're coming back. End of story. End of story. Abraham believed that God would be faithful to his promises, even if it meant raising them from the dead. This is the faith. This is the faith that you and I are invited into. Not a traditional religious scheme where we just simply find ways to say the right prayers, get the right comforts and luxuries built up in our life, to protect ourselves against all the minor inconveniences of our world. This is the faith that we're invited into, that when God makes promises, he never defaults on them. And even if it means raising them from the dead, raising them from the dead, that's exactly what he will do because it's exactly what he has done. He's lifted up his son from the grave, and now all bets are off. All hope is alive. All things are being made new because Jesus Christ went into the ground for three days, and God would not give up on his promise to restore his blessing to the world. And so the resurrection and power of Jesus. We will come up. I guess we're going to have to. I don't know. I don't know how. But he may, the son is my promise. 
Have you ever loved God's gifts more than him? Have you ever trusted in one of his promises more than him? It seems to me with this test, what's so significant about it, it doesn't come before Isaac is born, it comes after. It comes in a moment when you have the gift from God, when you complete the degree, when you find the spouse. It comes when you hit into your career groove. It comes when things are actually going well. It comes when the blessings of God are tangible. It comes when your dreams are starting to be realized. And this test comes when it says, will you love God or will you just love the things he gives? And God says, give it back. Because God knows if he'll give it back, he'll get everything. The same thing happened to the rich young ruler who came to Jesus trying to say, how is it that I can get eternal life? I'm willing to follow all of these laws and rules. And Jesus said to him, go sell everything you have. Give it to the poor then come follow me. Is that the magical ticket to heaven? Didn't say it to anyone else. He knew if he got that man's wallet, he'd get everything along with it. It was at the bottom of the stack. He knew if he got the son Isaac, he got everything along with it. And you know, this is the scariest part about God. He knows what's at the bottom of your stack too. And once you give that, everything will go with it. And until you've given that, you haven't given him what he wants. Because he wants you. It might be your career, it might be your wallet, it might be your family, it might be your identity. It might be your five-year plan, your 10-year plan. Some of you are crazy enough to have a 25-year plan. But But once you give him that thing that makes everything else go along with it, now I know, he says, you'll fear me, you'll trust me, and through you, oh, man, we're going to do some serious damage to hell. Gates of hell, I'm telling you. I'm going to put a water pistol in your hand, and off we go to those that trust him. I'm going to close with this. Worship team, you guys can come on up. Oh, my gosh. Oh, the best part about these stories, you guys, is we're not the first ones that have had to process them. Did you know that? The Apostle Paul processed these stories, thought about them a lot, and what it meant to be a follower of Jesus in light of these things. And I believe these stories are an invitation to us, not just the amazing plan of God, that spanned human history, but also the amazing invitation to us to now be joined into the faith like Abraham had, to trust in a God who raises things from the dead. Listen to what Paul wrote in Romans chapter four about the kind of faith that Abraham had and the kind of faith that we are invited to participate in. It says in verse 18, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed And so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offsprings be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the facts. He faced the facts that his body was as good as dead and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words that was credited to him were written not for just him, but also for us, 
to whom God will credit right, a right standing of relationship with him. For us who believe, and for us who believe what? For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justifications. You and I are invited into resurrection faith. It means hope. Hope never fades. It means that no matter how you're feeling, joy is the most authentic expression of your life at every given moment. It may not be the strongest thing you're feeling at a moment. It will always be the deepest thing you will be feeling in a moment because we believe in a God who raises things from the dead. This is our faith. This is our faith. I thank God I haven't had as dramatic of a test as Abraham had, but I believe all of us will have moments where we have to come to terms. Not just do we trust him, oh, but do we trust him? Will we trust him with the bad things and the pain, or will we trust him also with the good things? Let this story mess with you shape you and draw you in to a God who is better, more loving, more powerful than who you present believe him to be. I want to pray. Simon, you want to come on up? Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for this church family, and I am asking that resurrection faith will grow in this group. I'm asking, Father, that you would increase our faith Help us to trust according to who you really are, even when we can't see, even when we don't understand. I'm asking in the name of Jesus for the faith of Abraham to believe against all odds, to trust that you can raise even dead things to life. Father, I'm asking even for my friends, for my brothers and sisters here, God, whatever they're going through in their personal lives, I don't know where they're at, but I know that you do, Father. And God, I'm asking that your loving kindness would draw them into a deeper level of trust. For those that know they need to let go of some things that they're worried about, burdens that they're carrying that are not theirs, I'm asking that in faith they would let go. For those of us here that are enjoying the sweetness of your provision and your blessing and your goodness, Father, I'm asking that that would not distract us from the true gift, which is you. Father, let the weight of this amazing passage wash over your people. In Jesus' name.